When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Sleep Deprived Tennis Podcast. No, it's the Love Tennis Podcast, of course, but at last the Australian Open is over and some of us can stop getting up quite so early in the morning got loads to talk about today we'll do our best to get through everything uh, did Daniil Medvedev blow his chance at a first Australian Open title is Rafael Nadal now the goat once again uh, how long was Ash Barty's party and can anyone remember any of it but we'll talk about Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis and whether they touch each other's bums enough or too much uh, Krajikova and Siniakova played one of the greatest or perhaps if your opinion is otherwise worst match points of all time in the doubles final We'll also look back on fantasy tennis, the highlights of the tournament, our biggest disappointments, and exactly what this Australian Open means for the sport. I am, of course, as always, brought joined by George Belshaw and Calvin Beton. You might also notice this week a little bit of an uptick in sound quality. We have had an equipment upgrade that has finally come through. Um, it's partly thanks to your support, of course. It's partly th- thanks to the support of people like Manscaped, who you'll hear a little bit more about a little later on. Um, do please get involved with their offer that we've got through them. It helps us do things like make the sound quality better and take time away from our day jobs to come and do this for you. But there is only one place to start. Of course, it is that final between Rafa Nadal and Daniil Medvedev. Five and a half hours long it was, just 20 minutes short of the longest ever Australian Open final, which also involved Rafa Nadal. Uh, It was five sets. Daniil Medvedev led 6-2 and then 7-6 in what should have been a pretty quick start to the match, but of course, it being these two, it wasn't. Nadal had Nadal was three break points down at 2-3 in the third set. He roared back and never looked back. George, in terms of Rafael Nadal comebacks, I mean, I was actually thinking about this. I, I think I'm probably saying he hasn't come back from two sets down to win a five-setter in about 15 years, but that's mostly because he's very rarely two sets down in a five-setter. It's been a long time. I think it was another Russian then, wasn't it? Mikhail Yuzhny, yeah. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I really enjoyed the match. I thought it was really interesting. It's a good watch. But I was kind of thinking after this, you know, actually the second set, Nadal probably should have won. He was up a couple of breaks. And at that stage, I was kind of thinking, well, 
his firepower is not really working well enough. Medvedev's kind of swallowing everything up, which is kind of how I expected this match to go, to be honest. I think Medvedev has moved to a higher level on a hard court. And even though he wasn't necessarily playing at his best, it felt to me similar to how Nadal plays Djokovic, that weaponry just doesn't seem to kind of actually affect them so much on hard courts. Um, and it was interesting <laughs> listening back to last week's podcast. Obviously, I wasn't involved in your guys' half of the uh, preview of the semifinals. I actually listened back to it, finished it off after the um, match today. And you, you, Calvin kind of alluded to it a little bit that Medvedev can beat himself. And really, that that is what kind of happened. You know, that game where he was love 40 up, um, there was some honestly astonishing decisions he made in that game. Like, just shot choices weird things he was going for where actually he, he had the formula and he just kept trying really weird things and I think the really strange thing for me was his over-dependence on the drop shot today like mm. it felt like we were going back in time to that Djokovic Nadal French Open final in 2020 where Djokovic just kept trying this when has this been a tactic against Nadal and who's decided this works like the point winning ratio of drop shotting Nadal must be so, so poor. I just, I don't understand why people have decided that's such an amazing tactic. And it's not because um, it's not like he's bad at the net either, right? Like he's a pretty, yeah, he's un- I, I don't think he's the best volleyer in the top 100, but he's a pretty underrated volleyer. So it's not like once you get him forward, you just have to get one more ball back and he's probably going to miss it. Yeah. I, he's like, I understand he does stand quite far behind the baseline and whatever. And particularly that actually the underarm serves a half decent tactic to a kind of surprise perspective, but to do it over and over and over and over again, Nadal's predicting it. He's a great anticipator. He's racing to the ball every time and he's good enough to finish. Um, yeah. I mean, look, shot choices were off from Medvedev, but I think the other big issue actually was that his execution was quite poor in big moments and particularly at the net. And, you know, we've spoken a bit about how good this next gen are at volleying. There were some moments today, some really bad volleys from Medvedev who, and his, actual rushing to the net was wrong as well. Like the times he was coming in, um, we've said that about Nadal. The reason he's so good at the net is because he comes in on the right ball. Medvedev was trying to force it at the wrong moments and then not executing. Uh, that's a recipe for disaster against Nadal. Mm. I think it's worth noting that, uh, and he had treatment on his, I think, left thigh a couple of times, just sort of what looked like just fatigue treatment, you know, when they come out and just rub some cream into it and hope that it helps. It's worth noting that he has played a lot of tennis in this yeah. Australian Open. He He's played, I think he's played probably more sets than anyone else. In fact, almost certainly. Um, he only won two matches in straight sets. You know, he dropped one to Kyrgios, one to Cressy. Obviously, we went two sets down to Felix Auger-Aliassime, a match that took a huge amount out of him. And he also went an extra set with Tsitsipas. And these matches are never short. The way that he plays, and I said this to Calvin last week, um, the amount of ground that he has to cover because he stands so deep generally, he does take a lot more out of his legs. Do you think, Calvin, that fatigue began to play a role? I mean, it's a five-set match. Surely it must have done inevitably. A little bit, I think, but I think it wasn't the major factor. I think there were other things that that played a bigger part, um, namely his limitations in his game. Um, I actually missed the middle because I had to go and, and do my day job. Um, which is also watching tennis matches. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I saw the first two sets, then I saw, I missed the middle two, but then I saw most of the last set. Um, he has limitations in his game, and primarily what stood out to me that he has this huge serve, which is massive, but then if the serve comes back, he's not great at ball three. 
um, on it. He rarely puts it away. And also what it reminded me of um, was, I think, two years ago, George and I did um, an analysis of Medvedev for the Metro where we did a video. And I pointed out in that that when he approaches down the line, he always tapers his shots inwards because they're out to in. So the shots and he, he can't hit a ball straight down the line. And on seven or eight occasions in the third set today, he had a sort of mid-court ball, maybe a bit further back of mid-court, with Nadal out wide on the other side, and he can't hit it straight, almost. Think about it, he can't hit it parallel with the sideline. Is, so is, ba- is this for my head? Is this on his backhand wing or his forehand wing? Both sides, both sides, because both of his swings are out. what, what I'd call out to in. Right. He gets the outside of the ball when he swings. Um, so they all taper into the middle of the court. And, of course, that gives the, the defending player the ball's coming towards them rather than going away from them. So those two things stood out for me. And also a problem that Medvedev has, and a problem. this is a problem that all players who play kind of like that do, where they, they may realize, except for Medvedev's huge serve, which we take as a given, they basically rely on their opponents making errors to win them points. That's where most of their points come from. And a lot of errors come from concentration errors early in a match when you can pick up errors. But once you get into a lead and once the match gets close to the end, it's less likely that your opponent will give you concentration errors because they're concentrating more and they know they have to make balls in order to stay in the match. So that's when we see a lot of players, when you when you see claims that a lot of players have, in inverted commas, bottled it, it's nothing, nothing has really changed in them. They're doing the same, but the opponent will tend to make less errors at the end. And if you look at the players who close matches out well, historically, people like Nadal, um, Andy Roddick used to do it. Um, Berrettini's very good at closing matches out. They're guys with huge weapons who can hit winners. Mm. When, when it comes to it, when you have to close a match out, they close it out. And the players who historically struggle to close matches out, Nadal, when he gets a bit tentative sometimes, Dan Evans has had, a bit, has a, has had it labelled at him. Medvedev now has struggled to close out. You forget as well that Medvedev struggled to close out against Djokovic at the US Open mm. when he was cruising it. And he was basically then relying on making first serves at that yeah. tournament. And he struggles because players stop making errors and then he loses his way of, make, of winning points. Yeah. I think just, just to pick up on Calvin's first point about the kind of shots tapering in, I still think today Medvedev, and I know it sounds like we're kind of, shitting on him a bit here but he's still played a pretty good match you know he's pushing the dale five hours five hours and 30 whatever he probably should win the match but if there's one guy you don't want to be giving half a sniff to be running for a passing shot and not putting it quite far enough in the corner it's nadal and he got he got caught by that forehand so many times today um and you just you'd put your house on nadal making that sort of shot if it's not perfect and even you know we've seen more perfect ones over the years Nadal can still get out and thump those up the line with crazy angles so yeah I think that that's a key point as well from Calvin he's also another thing I'd say is when when we said there that Nadal is actually a very good volleyer and also Nadal has underrated hands around the net drop shots he played a beautiful flick today where Joko um, Medvedev had drop shot at him and he flicked it cross court and the difficulty to play the shot, it's difficult to explain without seeing it, but it was phenomenal and you need good touch to do it. But on the flip side of that, Medvedev is a really bad volleyer um, mm-hmm. and he's also not got great hands around the net, which was also what I found strange last year was there was this weird claim going around that Medvedev was a really good volleyer because he served volleyed a couple of points. I think it was against team and people saying he should serve and volley more. You found out today a lot of the time why he doesn't serve volley more because he's not a good volleyer at all. 
I think the interesting thing for me on that point is with a big guy like Medvedev, I'd expect him to struggle a lot more on kind of the low volleys. It's how many he's missing at head height that were really noticeable today. Like just volleys for a guy like that should be bread and butter. He just looks awkward and anxious there. You know, you've, what Calvin was saying about Nadal's low volleys, you know, he's got a really good center of gravity. He gets down low, he's in the right position, and then he's got the technique and feel, which is unbelievably difficult. You'd really struggle to see Medvedev Medvedev do that because of his height but there's no reason he shouldn't be chopping a, a volley at head height away uh, off the backhand side and there, there were a few really poor ones like that today so yeah big area of improvement for him um, that said though it was still it was still okay he still kept fighting at the end I, I don't I mean, think it's like a great post-mortem of Medvedev's career is over or anything no, he, no. he fought in tough conditions against one of the greatest of all time you know it's easy to lose sight of that that it's almost a good, a positive for him that he should be winning this match. You know, yeah. Natal's a pretty tough guy to beat. I mean, he's been in four Grand Slam finals. He's only lost one of them in straight sets. He's won one of them. And the other two, he's lost in five sets to Rafa Nadal. Like, you know, he's this isn't Roger Federer's first six Grand Slam finals. This is in at the deep end, to say the least. Um, I think we've talked a lot about Medvedev's tennis. I kind of want to talk about a bit about Medvedev, the guy. For a lot of people, this will have been their first kind of real experience of Medvedev, the guy. We've got to know him a little bit through tennis, obviously. And he he's he's crackers. I mean, he's completely insane. Um, and we love him for it. And, you know, Nick Kyrgios can say that tennis has struggled to embrace personalities all he likes, but um, it's not true. And I think Medvedev, as time goes on and as the big three retire, people will learn to love Medvedev a lot. But he gave... One of the more remarkable things I've heard in a press conference uh, for a long time today, um, he started his press conference, it was about 20 past two in the morning, local time in Melbourne, because they finished at half 12, I guess. And, you know, it takes time to work through everything. And he started by saying, this isn't going to be a normal press conference. This is going to be, well, I've got a little story. It might be short, it might be long, I don't know. Turned into a four minute monologue. And I won't play you all of it, but I've got a little bit um, sort of queued up here. The context for it is he talked about being a kid dreaming of doing big things in tennis and of watching tennis on TV and being around people and it being a real dream to go out and potentially be able to do some of these things. And he talked about the disappointment of being not in the top 10. And, you know, he lost to Benjamin Bonzi at the French Open in 2017 and there was one journalist in the room afterwards. And it was a last 16 match, you know, it was a reasonably serious match. Um, but of course, the focus is on Bonzi. He spoke French to the crowd afterwards and no one really appreciated it, even though he was making an effort to speak to them in their language. Um, and then today, he was very much the underdog on court, of course, because he was playing the Dal in Australia. But he took it really personally, I think. And, and this is what he had to say about it um, afterwards. Talking about few moments where the kid stopped dreaming and today was one of them. I'm not going to really tell why. So from now on, I'm playing for myself for my family, to provide my family, um, for people that trust in me, uh, of course, for all the Russians, because I feel a lot of support there. Um, I'm going to save in like this. So if, if there is a tournament on hard courts in Moscow uh, before uh, Roland Garros or Wimbledon, I'm going to go there, even if I miss a Wimbledon or Roland Garros or whatever. Um, the kid stopped dreaming. The kid uh, is going to play for himself. And uh, that's it. That's my story. Daniel Medvedev there speaking after his match against Nadal. I mean, it, you should listen, and I'm sure you can find the whole thing somewhere. Um, I might even post it as a bonus on the, the Twitter account or, or on the podcast feed. But 
it's a remarkable story that ends with this quite profound kind of conclusion where he says he sort of gives up on the world of tennis fans like they're never going to love him. Now, as I say, it's half two in the morning. He's just lost an incredibly emotional Grand Slam final. But I don't know what you guys think, but I thought it was very sad. I thought it was a really sad moment for him to think that no one's ever going to love him. I love you, Daniil. I'll love you. I, th- I think the, um, the uh, there's a point in it as well. I think he said perhaps that he um, wouldn't play beyond his 30s, which, mm. I mean, that would be a real shame if, if this guy cuts his career short because he doesn't feel love or whatever. But as far as I know, mo- most people I know find Medvedev a really interesting, fun character. I, I don't see this kind of great hate towards him. I, I think, you know, he, he sometimes doesn't help himself in the way he kind of wants to take on the crowd. There was a li- It was a little bit over the top from some of the crowd today. It's obviously a bit tougher to get a, a full sense of it from TV compared to actually being... Well, I mean, the amount yeah. the umpire was getting involved should tell you. And, and Incidentally, I've not come across John Blom, the umpire today, b- before, and I'm completely okay. in love with him. Like, I don't know whether it's specific to tournaments, but at Wimbledon, there's almost like a script of the things they have to say you know, when the crowd are being rowdy. Um, and uh, in Australia, John Blom's just like, just freestyling. At one point he was just like, sorry, I thought we talked about calling out during points. I, th- I genuinely at one point thought he was going to say, it's your own time you're wasting. Like he just sounded like a grumpy teacher. It was so good. But from, as you say, George, it's always hard to tell from TV, but surely Calvin, this is inevitable. Like if you're going to play, and he has, as I say, only played Grand Slam finals against members of the big three, He's always going to be the underdog for now anyway, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I thought that that's... I mean, it's interesting seeing him say it because I thought he thrived off mm. sort of pissing the crowd off a little bit. But, I mean, I do feel for him because, I, I mean, he's had this and he's had the Kyrgios match as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess he's played Tsitsipas and there are a lot of Greeks in Australia. So That crowd was very probably... pro Tsitsipas, very much. Yeah. Um, so he's had a bit of a bad run there. but And also, that crowd are absolute idiots. I'm, I'm going to say, I mean, I, I've thought for a long time that Wimbledon is the worst crowd in tennis, uh, maybe maybe even the worst crowd in sport. But the, these lot this this year were absolutely terrible. They had zero interest in, well, not all of them, but there was a, a, a huge portion of them who had zero interest in what was actually happening on the court. And the the sort of, you know, I, I text my mate yesterday sort of joking with him saying, imagine sort of saying to your mates, like, oh, I'm going to the tennis today. And your mate going, oh, that'd be good. It's really there's some really good matches. I'm not going to watch the tennis. I'm just going to cre- keep shouting CU all the time. Like, wh- like it's just idiotic. And I mean, there was a great moment today where he said something like he was arguing with the umpire, and the umpire basically said, "Look, there's not a lot I can do about it." And he's gone, "Well, can you just announce that whoever's doing it is an idiot?" Um, and, and that was <laughs> world world class from Medvedev. Like he just wanted it officially pointing out that if you do that, you're an absolute spanner. I um, like it because he also because he knows those. You know, if he says something at a changeover, people will pick up on it. So he's he's half yeah. talking to the umpire and he's half talking to the world, which I kind of yeah. love. Uh, yeah, you're, I mean he's you're brilliant. Right. I mean the one the one the other day, like I mean without a doubt, one of the best insults I've ever heard is. <laughs> Is you are how can I say a small cat? (laughs) Which, which, for the record, like a small cat is a kitten. Like a small (laughs) cat is like the word pussy, which is the word that he was like pussyfooting around. If you excuse the pun, the the word pussy is not referential to the size of the cat. 
as far as I understand it. It's just a sort of slang term. Um, Isn't it a female cat? I always thought Pussy was a female cat. I don't know. My my girlfriend's the cat cat. expert. I'll maybe have to... What do you say, George? I said maybe just like a timid cat, like a pussy cat. Yeah, I don't know. Or, yeah, like a house cat. I don't know. It's probably more than he wanted to. But, yeah, the fact that he had... Also, the fact that that comment came after he had just very personally screamed at Jaume Campistol for the entirety of a changeover, like asking him why he was so bad at a Grand Slam semi-final, that he felt that using the word pussy would have been the moment at which Campistol decides that he had overstepped the mark. I mean, it really is, you know, just wiping your shoes before you walk in to rob someone's house. I mean, I guess as well, a little problem that Medvedev's got is that, like, he's look, for us, he's great personality, he's great, great value. In the press conferences, he talks well on that. His game is a bit boring. Like, I don't yeah. think he's going to... He's not... Um, and I think this is part of the reason as well why Djokovic isn't as loved as Federer and Nadal. They both play more exciting tennis than than Djokovic does. And they both they both have a bit more about them, I guess. Yeah. And I guess Djok- Medvedev's a little bit like Djokovic. And Djokovic has this big thing about not being loved. I mean, Medvedev, like, Medvedev is like a nutter. He's not as weird as Djokovic. Like, I don't think he's dangerously weird like Djokovic is. I like that the list of people that Calvin's pissed off in the first half of the podcast today include half of all the crowds at all the Grand Slams and anyone who likes Novak Djokovic. So it's good. I mean, I'm, I, you know what? On the, I'm just going to pull you up on the Wimbledon crowd because I know that a lot of our listeners go and watch Wimbledon and I'd like to stand up on their behalf. At least you can say about Wimbledon, I've never seen them behave the way fans do at um, the Australian Open or to a certain extent Flushing Meadows in terms of respect for players. Like, I know they can be a bit fawning, but I would suggest that generally they're pretty reasonable to the other side. To a degree, there was always this thing. I mean, I guess I'm a little bit older than you guys, but there was always this thing about like Wimbledon never, when I was growing up, Wimbledon fans never clap errors. They they never cheer or clap for errors. It turned out that that was just because there were never any Brits playing to clap the errors against. And then as soon as Tim Henman came along, they were clapping double faults, unforced <laughs> errors, miscall, and it's like, all right. So it was just a matter of convenience, was it? It wasn't like it wasn't an ethical decision. You just never really res- wanted anyone to win that much. It wasn't a respectful crowd. It was just like, an uninterested one that just yeah, exactly, weren't that passionate yeah. either way. Well, maybe. Yeah, we'll no, it's how- not. No, it's it's different, isn't it? It's not. Um, it's the same as like the British Davis Cup crowd, who I also. Um, don't have good, much time for good. it's just people turning <laughs> off by the second isn't it <laughs> um, but no but yeah I mean look at least those people they, they, they're tennis fans yeah. they, they want to watch tennis and they're not they're not shouting random things out about questionably ethical footballers from the other side of the world shout when they score yeah um, I, I did have someone that really made me laugh like I've tweeted probably about more than anything else about people shouting Sue at the tennis this week and someone replied to me going, isn't it a Cristiano Ronaldo? Isn't it a British thing that Cristiano Ronaldo invented at Manchester United? And I was like, we can take credit for an awful lot of evil in the world. The great British Empire was one of the great genocides in the world. But I am not taking credit for this. He, he was at Madrid when he invented it. And it's a Portuguese word. Well, it's the it's the Portuguese pronunciation of a Spanish word, basically. But anyway, let's not get bogged down into it. My personal favourite crowd moment of the week 
was during the um, men's doubles final with Kyrgios and um, Kokonakis when a bloke with a sort of mullet and a dodgy beard shouted F off at the top of his voice, like as Max Purcell was tossing the ball up in the air and like obviously, you know, stopped and like it pissed him off a huge amount naturally. And the cameras picked him out and you could see people kept turning around to him to be like, what are you doing, mate? Like, stop it. And he was like, oh, oh, sorry. I Like, he was really apologetic as though he'd sort of accidentally done it. Like, <laughs> as though he just, like, you know, had an enormous sneeze at an inopportune moment. It's like, you didn't just, like, accidentally scream an elongated obscenity during the guy's serve. I don't know. I mean, it's late night crowds and they've been locked up for two years in Melbourne, so maybe we should cut them some slack. I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to cut them much slack. Anyway, we should probably talk a little bit about Rafa Nadal. I feel like we've talked a lot about Daniil Medvedev. Um, Rafa Nadal has been pretty sensational this tournament. And I kind of put it up there as one of his best Grand Slam wins. Maybe not in terms of the people he's beaten, but in terms of import to him. He said it a number of times that six weeks ago, he was genuinely talking to his team about retiring. Now, players sometimes say this, and I've heard it before. I, I don't think of Nadal as the kind of guy to make that up or kind of embellish it for dramatic effects because he's generally been a pretty honest and sound guy overall. I really think, and you saw, was it after the semi-final that he was sobbing into his bag, like just out of nowhere, just that kind of, and I heard one of our fellow podcasters compare it to Murray at Washington in 2019. Um, and I do think it was that same kind of thing. Like I thought I wouldn't be here again and now I am. And for me, I don't know how you feel, George, but for me, this is will be perhaps the most important win for Nadal, this Australian Open, in terms of when he looks back at his career and goes, the ones that have meant the most to me. Yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. I mean, I'd say this is probably the most special Nadal slam final win I can remember, um, Hell, which yes. is fairly obvious, I suppose, to a degree, but... You know, I, I think this is a better one than maybe. Okay, you've got the Wimbledon one that was pretty yeah, big. Yeah, I was going to say that, Wimbledon. That was close, that 08? But I think at at 36, having not won in Australia since yeah, it's 13 years ago, isn't it? Something yeah, like that. yeah. Last one Australia, I mean, and he's lost. And, and he's lost four finals in between, all of which hurt a lot. I mean, the 2017 one against Federer. I remember. I remember his post match speech, having lost to Federer, and it was like it was a tearjerker properly. And 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 Medvedev is seriously good as well. I mean, this is this isn't just being yeah. some pansy in the final. It's like a, a serious, serious win. Um, I mean, the, the one thing I would say though, again, and I know Calvin's used this a lot about Nadal. This draw didn't half open up for him again, did it? I mean, mm. if you think about what it should have been, it should have been carrots every round four, Zverev quarterfinals, Djokovic semifinals, Medvedev finals. And he's cut all of them out. And he um, nearly lost to Shapovalov in the quarters. You know, it, it, he is he he is a man you give give an inch, he will take the title. He, yeah. he really is. <laughs> um, and look, I, I'm not saying he doesn't win the title if he has to go through those harder matches. He may well have them, but he's not beaten Djokovic since 2013 on a hard court. You know, and you know, serves Djokovic right, frankly. Uh, you know, I'm not going to run around claiming I'm bothered on his behalf or saying this is an empty slam. But if he'd have had a tough... I, I still think Zverev would have given him a proper, proper match had they played, which I know is maybe fanciful given how badly he played against Shapovalov. But, you know, I think that would have been tougher. If he'd have played how he played against Dennis, 
allowing him back in, I think Zverev would have won that. Um, and obviously, I think Djokovic would have beaten him. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. That's how tennis tournaments work. You can only beat what's in front of you, but it's it's open nicely to a degree. It's interesting. I was thinking I didn't have time to check on the actual stats on it, but I know he beat Djokovic at the 2020 French. I'm just trying to think when was the last time before that he, that he beat either Djokovic or Federer in a slam. Um, I reckon we're... Has he done it in the last 10? Well, maybe last eight. Uh, that's. I was all ready to give you that stat, and then you said or Federer, and it is now a very tricky question. I don't think he's, um, I can't remember. To, oh, I beat Federer a French, actually, maybe about three beat, or four years ago. Yeah, he was really windy, and he beat Federer a French. He beat Djokovic twenty fourteen French as well. Twenty fourteen French Open final, uh, twenty thirteen U.S. Open. But the last time, I bet, so, so I bet outside of the French, then we're looking at. Nine years since he's beat one of them in a slam, I think, aren't we? Because Federer's beat him in his last few matches against him. Yeah, I mean, Nadal, Nadal hasn't actually beaten Federer except on clay. I mean, he obviously beat Federer in 2019 at Roland Garros and then had that long run of not beating him. Then 2014 in Australia was the last time he beat Federer in a slam outside of Roland Garros. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, it, so it, you know... <laughs> I guess this this brings me on to my next question, and it's something I've written about for tomorrow's paper, which is that I think that this victory has, I mean, it inevitably has reopened the GOAT debate. And I know, I, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes here and I don't want to spend a long time on it, but it is something that we said last week between us, Calvin, that this, it was a debate that was over last year. Like September last year, everyone agreed Djokovic was the greatest player of all time without the kind of tedious era arguments but that debate is no longer so closed is it um i don't know it depends whether you do it statistically i don't know whether this makes a great deal of difference because i don't know what for example this has had on i imagine look put it this way imagine if djokovic would have had this draw he probably would have won it if fully fit Federer would have, I mean, I guess this is similar to when Federer won it in 2018, um, similar type of situation. So they're all pretty good at cleaning up these when the others are not in it, um, to be fair. So I don't think sort of other than numerically, I don't know if this has much changes a great deal, um, mm. to be honest. But again, you know, I was thinking today coming home, like, like I just still don't know why it matters. You know, like we feel like it proves how ridiculous the the goats in inverted commas debate is when like Nadal's not in the mix two weeks ago because everyone pretty much thought it was Federer or Nadal, Federer or Djokovic, and then he wins a tournament that neither of the neither of the other two are in, and we suddenly go like people are going, oh, it's Nadal now. I mean, a mate texts me tonight going, that makes him officially the goat. Yeah, and it's like no, that's not how it works. Like it's just. I, I I had the same text for what it's worth off a, off a different friend. You know, it's just like, sorry, I think this is now proven Nadal is above Djokovic. Like, Djokovic hasn't been in the tournament. What, what, it doesn't prove that. Yeah. But anyway, but I think, it, you know, realistically, I, I do think it's fair enough just to go on end Grand Slam totals. And the big question now is, how many tournaments can Djokovic even get to? I mean, Nadal could well, be how many... 20- when you say the get to, one. do you mean win or like get into the I mean, get into the draw. I mean, well, I, I mean, he's, he's allowed into the, the UK rules have changed yeah. now, so he can get into the yeah. UK. But that's the one we've said he's always going to come into. But at the same time, Fed, we'd say right now he can't go to the French. So Nadal's going to win that. 
as it stands. Yeah, yeah. You know, Nadal's going through this draw like this. What's he going to be like on the bloody clay court? I you mean, haven't seen Dominic team. I hear he's hitting <laughs> balls again. Once again. Um, you know, Djokovic, we probably say, would win Wimbledon, even if he hasn't played for six months because just no one else can play on grass at the minute. Probably won't get into the US and they, unless they relax it. He's banned from Australia for three years, as it stands. You know, Nadal, it's going to get quite hard to close that gap if he doesn't just bite the bullet, take a vaccine. Um, so, yeah. And I it thought Djokovic be- would go past Margaret Court. That's my honest feeling. Like, six months ago, yeah. I, I thought it was beyond doubt he was going to go past Margaret Court because he just looks so good, so relentless. And Nadal looks so much on the way. This is a really stupid slam for Djokovic to lose in terms of... I know he didn't even play it, so it's kind of hard to say he lost it. No, I think lose court, is correct. But- it's stupid. He's thrown it away over stubbornness and stupidity and watching this would have hurt, hurt big time. And it's his own fault. I think it would be quite, it would be quite good if, if Nadal ends up with more than the other two, because then that would kind of like make, make the debate as silly as it is that nobody thinks Nadal's actually the best because he has like what, 12 of them at one slam. But I I think it's 13 or 13 yeah so it's like so if he ends up with the most it would sort of highlight how ridiculous that debate is um but yeah i'm delighted to have dragged us all into the ridiculous debate and written my column about it for tomorrow's newspaper (laughs) by the eye but what is worth eight eight slams on all the other surfaces is still pretty bloody good (laughs) and Uh, considering the opposition i mean you can't really knock that as I saw someone tweet, uh, I think it was Matt Willis, actually, um, not the guy from Busted, the guy from Racket. Uh, <laughs> he, say, he said, periodically, I just forget that Rafa Nadal is a really good hardcore player. I think a lot of other people do, too. Support for the Love Tennis podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, They've just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0 across Europe. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 4 million men who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code LOVETENNIS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off at manscaped.com. Just type in Love Tennis. That way you're helping yourself and you're also helping us a little bit at the podcast. The thing I'm really going for is the Crop Reviver, which describes itself as refreshing ball toner. Um, it's essentially a spritz. So I don't know if you're you're um, a man who gets a bit swampy on a, on a summer's day, you know, a bit sort of uncomfortable and warm. Is that, is that I'm a situation certainly uncomfortable you've... now, James. That we're, uh, <laughs> George, we were just talking earlier about how women should be able to talk about their own problems like endometriosis, and we should be able to talk about the fact that when it's hot and sweaty, you get hot and sweaty. Um, the refreshing ball toner is just a little pick-me-up uh, to spritz yourself. And I, honestly, I, I came home the other day, I've been on a tube, felt a bit grim. Little spritz, felt good as new. And, and the trimmer, the trimmer, I have to say, George, are you someone who has a trimmer that you use for every bit of your body? I, I'm someone who's very appreciative to have a specified trimmer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if you head to manscaped.com, you get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code LOVETENNIS. You unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. 
Now, we should, of course, talk about the Barty party. Too good for everyone, but not a classic final, my notes say. Pretty much sums it up rather well. Uh, she was 5-1 down in the second set, but she roared back. Uh, Daniel Collins twice served to force a deciding set, but could not hold. And then Barty did her thing. Uh, she got a little bit tight at the end, but got through eventually to the delight of a packed Australian crowd. She was the first home winner of the Australian Open since 1978, of course. Chris O'Neill's Calvin remembers well. Um, she was the <laughs> uh, 44 years in the making, which is obviously a familiar number for British tennis fans as well. Um, George, did Daniel Collins choke a bit here? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, I think we said last week in our kind of preview of the women's semi-finals and beyond that Barty was the clear favourite. The only big question was going to be will she feel the pressure more and more as she becomes that home favourite? And it is really hard not to argue that she she was feeling it horribly. In, I can't remember watching a worse Barty set than that second one. It was really poor. She got really tight. Everything was going wrong. I don't think Collins' level rose that dramatically. I mean, Collins was terrible in the first set, so it did rise a bit. But, you know, some of the commentary on that match was absolutely bizarre, just being like, <laughs> and Barty, hang in with Collins like this. Barty can't even make a bloody backhand. What are you talking about? It's nothing to do with Collins being amazing. Um, so, yeah. And then it just felt like Barty kind of got into that mode. We, Calvin kind of mentioned this a bit earlier about, you know, suddenly thinking, oh, I'm down. I'm just going to keep it really tight, make them beat me. And the reality was Collins was never going to win that final because she wasn't mentally believing she's a Grand Slam champion. And realistically, probably none of us thought she'd be a Grand Slam champion. So maybe she wasn't wrong on that point. But um, yeah, I thought she did well to kind of hang in there, make, let her opponent make the mistakes and roll through. And you could tell how much it meant to her. It was a really great story for Australia. First Aussie champion in like 44 years or something, I think. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it was the right result because she was comfortably the best player in that tournament, even after that woeful set that she still somehow won. It's quite hard sometimes. And I know that most of our listeners do come from the UK and we do have a few in Australia. So hello. Good evening. Thank you for a lovely tournament. Um, it, it's quite hard for us to kind of key into the, the excitement. But I think probably we can understand, you know, if you remember before Andy Murray won Wimbledon, what it was like every year and what people were talking about and talking to about Wimbledon. I think there's a stat that was like one in six Aussies watched it, I think. Yeah, pretty, crazy high TV big numbers. Like, yeah. There's a proportion. You know, I mean, it's Saturday night, which helps, so it's prime time. But I suppose then you've got a lot of competition. But uh, I imagine they didn't put many big programmes up against it. <laughs> Maybe Australian X Factor took a weekend off, I don't know. But yeah, it's obviously a huge deal. Um, Calvin, I, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm going to ask it anyway and then put my tin hat on. Um, this brilliant era of women's tennis that we were sort of hoping might emerge feels like it might not be as brilliant as we thought it was. Yeah, it's again, we come back to, without sounding like a broken record, we come back to this idea of rivalries, that they're just not playing each other in the finals. But then, as you say, we then have to start asking the question, well, are they actually as good as what we think they are? Or are we then mistaking potential for actual ability again? When you break it down, it's still basically Barty and Osaka, um, who regularly regularly are competitive at the slams and even those two go amiss often mm. at the slams the rest of them you got Schwantek who's won one um but the rest of them it's kind of a bit 
it's just Mugger Roots are again, he's too inconsistent. It's just a bit of a squib, isn't it? Andres and you mentioned Shontek. I mean, let's face it, Shontek got beat four and one by Daniel Collins in the semi final. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I disagree a bit that Daniel Collins bottled it or choked because I always think that I always say that under pressure, one of the biggest myths in sport is that certain players raise their game under pressure. That's never what happens. What I think happens under pressure is that you, you, the best players play their normal level. And I think yeah. that Danielle Collins basically, she, I, I do think she was at a normal level. I just don't think she's an elite level tennis player. And I think she was probably playing above a normal level for a couple of rounds before that. Certainly against Frontech, I think she thought, I can't beat this girl going sort of playing normal tennis. So I'm going to swing at every second serve return I get. And she, and she hit them. And yesterday, I think she probably just returned to a normal level of tennis. So I think it might be a bit harsh to say she choked. But um, yeah, again, just just a disappointing final, really. It was, it, was, it was kind of clouded a bit because it was Barty. There was a good atmosphere and it was in Australia. But if that was, say, to, if that was, say Sabalenka and Muguruza to throw in that one in, in the final, I don't think there'd have been a whole lot of crowd engagement there. I mean, just going back to the semi-final, I mean, Collins kind of had a similar thing in that that first set as what happened in the second set against Barty, where she was kind of cruising. Sviontek was all over the place, just couldn't do anything. Sviontek came back, almost won it. And then you're kind of thinking at that stage, well, Sviontek must be feeling a lot better now. She's a lot more comfortable. She's got her way back into the match and then just completely dropped off a cliff again. And, you know, Sviontek is one of these players who... I feel almost quite bad digging her out compared to most other players on the tour because she is the most consistent in terms of slam. She's getting to the fourth round of every slam. She's in the second week. She's gone to the semis here. It's not a terrible, terrible result, but the manner of that loss was just so, so weird. Limp. And you just, you just think that if Barty was in that final against Fiontech, there's no way she doesn't win that second set. There's just mm. no way. There's no way yeah. Barty plays that badly and a player of Sviontek's quality doesn't take full control and you get a dramatic third set. And yeah. if this if this final had gone three, you know, it would have been a more interesting match from the perspective of, okay, Barty needs to get a nerve back. It's really tense. Yeah, it would have had some of the time. But the fact she was already a set up and you could just kind of tell Collins was letting it slip you know, as Callum says, I'm not I'm not digging her out per se because she wasn't expected to win the match. It's not like a even in that position, it was only probably only going to win a set. But you know, it was just a case of can you take advantage of Barty fit clearly feeling the nerves and and she couldn't because she's she's not an elite level player and Barty is. Yeah, I, it, it was interesting that semi final. There was one point. I mean, I watched almost every point of it. The Shontek Collins semi final, and you know. Iga Shontek doesn't show a huge amount of emotion on the court. I mean, she sometimes does, but like her face, like she looked like a lost school child. Like I've never seen someone look so obviously feel like, I don't know, maybe there was something going on in her head that we have no idea about. But if so, then, you know, that's something that she needs to overcome. And she just looked completely lost in a situation where, she shouldn't have been lost. She was the favourite to win. She's the better player. It's a Grand Slam semi-final. She's been there before, and and yet it didn't click. She she's quite a funny one from a kind of emotional perspective. Like I've seen her cry after wins that yeah. didn't feel that significant. I'm pretty sure there was one in this tournament actually that is probably just escaping my head who it was. Yes, no, she she was in after. tears on the court and she said, "I cry after wins. I cry after losses. It's just a normal yeah. day." She is quite up and down, and you know. It was funny because the French Open, she'd kind of credited um, 
a lot of her success to working with this mental coach for kind of putting tennis in perspective and it not making that big of a deal. But you kind of see her and, you, you, and how she reacts to certain things. And you're like, I'm not sure you have got that in perspective. Like, I really don't. <laughs> like, it, it, it is very up and down what she's feeling. I mean, I think she's great. I think she could be a really good personality and is a good, a good player to watch and interesting for the women's game. But yeah, I, I couldn't understand that performance again. And it's just disappointing because kind of you expect these players, your Barty's fiance, Osaka's, when they get into the second week, you kind of expect them to kick on. You know, they've got the form, they get ready. I think they're all vulnerable to early exits, but once they get the ball rolling, I'd back all of them in those kind of latter stage matches until they face each other. But yeah, just didn't turn up at all. It was, it was very odd. I think it's... Um... She's an interesting one, is Fontek. I, I think she's brilliant. I think I do think she'll be world number one at some stage, and I think she'll win multiple more slams. But she does have this sort of record of she's the most consistent of the lot of them. But in each one of those, I think, what did she make last year? She made quarters of each slam or fourth round of each slam. She definitely she had one flop. Round. I thought um, Barbara Kajikva was the only one to make fourth round at all four. I right, I, I don't know. Shontek was the only one fourth round. Oh, there you fourth. go, yeah. yeah. So Shontek made fourth round at every single one, but she only won one fourth round match. Yeah. yeah, and I think in all of those fourth rounds as well, she lost to somebody who you wouldn't expect her to lose to. Um, and again, this is the fifth one as well. So <clears throat> although it's um, although it, it's sort of, yeah, she's consistent in getting there, she seems to still have these moments where it, it kind of goes wrong. And I mean, I think that's a pretty bad one losing to Collins because no disrespect. I don't think Collins is that good a tennis player. Yeah, she lost to Halep, Bencic and Ons Jabeur in the fourth rounds last year, which they're all players. I mean, you know, there are no mugs there, but they're all players you would expect her to beat, as you say. No, you know, if if that was Halep three years ago, you'd say that's fine. You know, that's a really, really tough match. Halep's not the player she is. She was a couple of years ago now. Um, Ons Jabour, to be fair, is an absolute nightmare. And she, you know, we've seen her take out Muguruza. That's not someone you want to kind of run into. Mm. Benchich, I always think Sviantec should be beating Benchich, but. Well, because she's just a better version of Benchich, well. isn't she? Didn't she lose to Sakari in the French? That, that wasn't fourth um, round, though, was That was quarter well, final, yeah. All right, okay. But she, Quite you similar know, that, types that, of player there, all there, aren't they? Like, sort of the big hitters, people who trade with her, but you would expect her to win most of those kind of big hitting tee off. So I don't know. I feel like that, I mean, you know, a different week, we have a different conversation about a different player on WTA and go, she, she could and should, and we're just waiting. Before that, before this one, I think the French one stood out as the worst one for me in terms of that tournament had completely fallen apart. She'd won it so convincingly last year. Didn't, I think she pretty much steamrolled everyone up to that point. I know Sakari played really well, but you know, that, that was a really strange loss for her as well. Um, and I, again, we've got to caveat this. It, their only strange losses can, is a compliment to her in a way because we all think yeah. she's brilliant um, and should be better than she is. Should be doing better than she is. Should be doing better. Her results appear not to match her ability or what Absolutely. we think her ability is. But then maybe we have to revise our opinion of what her ability is. And that's kind of what I, this all comes back to. And you know, it's that inevitability, right? Like this is a tennis podcast. We're here to talk about tennis and we want to talk up tennis. Like we're not here as marketeers for the sport, but we want to talk about who might be good and who might be going on to win some things. 
we don't want to sit here and talk about who's bad and people being bad at tennis. So inevitably, we, we're kind of over-optimistic, maybe. Yeah, and I think the, the stark difference is that every single pod we've done at the end of a Grand Slam over the last, say, five five slams or whatever, and it's probably longer than that, in the men's side, we're always saying there's a narrative here, there's something going on, there's been a great rivalry match between the guys we know. You know, you build that kind of information about these people, like what does this say about Nadal? What does this say about Medvedev? What does this say about Djokovic? Even Zverev, to a degree, has been in those conversations as a semi-finalist a lot uh, last year. I I don't know what the narrative is in women's tennis at the minute, other than Barty's head and shoulders above the rest right now. Yeah. that That's the narrative. And I... I think Barty's really, really good. Don't get me wrong. I think she's really level-headed, really interesting. But I'm not seeing Barty beat someone that I'm thinking, man, that'd be a great match. Really looking forward to that. Can't wait for it. Where's Barty Osaka? Where's Barty's fiance? Where are these matches? They're not happening. And that's a big problem in building someone like Barty because it's just like, well, she should win. She's not playing the best players to win these slams. It's not her fault. But something's got to change. Someone's got to come up with her and that will take women's tennis to the next level. We've not had one of those for a while though, have we? Even, even at the back end of co- kind of the Serena era, if you will, there was Sharapova, I guess, but Sharap- she, she battered Sharapova every time they played. But we've not kind of had that women's, a proper rivalry, a proper multi-way rivalry since Serena and the Belgian girls, Kleisters yeah. and Henan. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of been a while since... Yeah, maybe 10, 10 years, I reckon. I mean, it's kind of just, sorry, George, to interrupt, to cut across you. It's, it's, there's been a number of Grand Slam finalists in the last four years who I think struggle to be household names outside of their own home. Like, and sometimes not even then. You know, the Marketa Vondrasovas of the world or Anastasia Pavlichenka, Pavlichenkova. I'm not saying they're bad tennis players or bad people. I'm saying that there has been so much variety in the women's game and so many, and, and it kind of comes back to what you're saying, Calvin, we haven't had a rivalry like that. You know, even people who've won multiple slams and like in the last five years, there have only been about three women who have won multiple slams. There are There is beef out there, but Yelena Ostapenko doesn't win enough um, knockout matches and Angelique Kerber only hung around for a year at the very top of the game and then came back. And, you know, there are so many names we could throw in there, but none of them hung around for long enough. The, the the rivalry that I would say of the big names of this current generation, I mean, more in terms of superstar potential than um, necessarily being top of the rankings that's played each other most in Grand Slams has probably been Goth Osaka. And that's always been a third round or something. Yeah. Like yeah. first to third round. They, they And that's like complete luck of the draw. That's not them going deep. But, that, but that's literally it. And you can't really build a narrative from that other than, oh, Goss beating Osaka, is she going to go on to the next thing? And then she's going out a couple of rounds later. So what are we building here? It's it's completely unthinkable that the two finalists in any men's slam would lose first or second round of the next men's slam, which is what just happened in the women's. In Fernandez and... Uh, Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu. Yeah. Yeah, both at yeah. once. Yeah, that would be a good that would be a good stat to find out. Actually. Yeah, I, I can't think that it's... actually Raducanu lost two, didn't they? Didn't yeah, I mean two? that's what but I said. It losing the first, first two. two rounds. Sorry, first two. Yeah, um, I just don't think you just. But look, 
Tennis, when it's at its biggest and its most popular as a worldwide sport, is when you have rivalries, when you have Navratilova Everts, when you have Borg McEnroe, when you have Agassi Sampras, Nadal Federer. That's when people actually watch tennis. That's what they tune in to watch. They want to watch on a Sunday at slam finals. They want to watch the big names playing each other. Yeah. And that's a problem that women's tennis has. And, you know, we had a little debate yesterday about whether women's tennis should play five sets. And this is what I find difficult with it, that nobody is going to want to watch five sets of two players that they've never heard of if they're not big tennis fans. Yeah. It's exactly it. Yeah. Why elongate the product if the problem is that the product currently isn't good enough? Um, and, and you're right about the rivalries thing. In all individual sport, it's not about being a great athlete. It's about having rivalries. You know, Palmer, Nicholas, Senna, Prost, um, I don't know, Riddick Bowe and, and um, uh, Mike, not Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, like uh Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua if they don't ever if they like I tell you what this is a great example of exactly it Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua will go down in history as great heavyweights but they will not go down as great great heavyweights unless they fight each other and it's the same thing with women's tennis at the moment yeah I mean an example I can think of I know this hasn't been like a really long spread out rivalry but I have no interest in F1, but I knew what was going on in the F1 season by the end, the Hamilton, the yeah. Stafford, you know, that narrative has been built for months and months and months. And then you've got these massive moments happening in the biggest moments. It's huge news. People kind of build that tension. What what story are we painting right now in women's tennis? It's hard to answer that question. That's a fundamental problem. Uh, the only one I'd say on that, James, I'm moving off tennis here. Most people probably won't be interested in this, is Mike Tyson was an absolute superstar and you know more boxing more than I do, but I don't think he ever f- beat anybody who would be in the top 30 heavyweights of all time. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, he lost to Lennox Lewis. The Evander Holyfield thing, that obviously went massive. Like they had, they, I mean, I know Evander Holyfield, Evander Holyfield wouldn't be a great, no, uh, admittedly. They didn't um, beat him. He lost to him, didn't he? Yeah, I'm twice. saying he didn't beat, didn't beat any, Um, didn't actually beat oh, any. I see, right, yeah. Yeah, no, I suppose not. Um. I mean, Larry Holmes, but like Larry Holmes was pretty past it by then. Yeah, um, the, yeah he that would probably be the only one, I think. Like, I'm trying to think how old Holmes was. I mean, yeah, he was he was pushing, potentially pushing 40 by then. So, yeah, then yeah you you're right, you're like... right. So he's, but, but the thing with Mike Tyson is he's an exceptional personality. He's, he's not yeah. always a, a good guy. Like, you know, he, he's a convicted rapist. We shouldn't forget that. Um, but he was he had some charisma and this like absolute rags to riches story, as well as one of the great fighting styles. Like for people who don't know, Mike Tyson was a small heavyweight with incredible speed, incredible power that came from nowhere. He was also a complete lunatic. He was the ultimate package. I think as well though, like imagine if like would McEnroe have, I mean, there's a period in the early eighties where McEnroe was probably the, the world's biggest sports star or Borg was one of them. Where would either of them have got if, if they'd have, if McEnroe have played his Wimbledon finals against, I don't know, Kevin Curran or, or someone like that. And no disrespect to Kevin Curran, who of course was a bit later, but um, it just kind of wouldn't, would it? And when you look at it, it's a strange era that as well, because McEnroe, aside from Borg, Borg was kind of a bit, when Borg retired, wasn't really anybody around. Uh, Are we getting into players. the Ivan Lendl era? It's kind of between eras, wasn't it? Lendl was a bit young. 
Connors were still hanging around, but yeah, it's it's built on rivalries all the time. It is a great example as well because you know McEnroe was a very engaging, interesting character. But you hear him talk back about that era, and when he says Borg left the game, he says his own motivation dropped. You know, these guys bring the best out of each other as well. They want to beat those guys. They yeah. recognize that greatness. And we, you know, we've been, it's easy to forget we've been really lucky in this men's era to have that kind of consistent greatness. I'm not saying that happens all the time, but even in the other, other kind of big eras. Where that haven't been as consistent comparatively as like I'm thinking of Sam Pras Agassi, you know, wasn't quite to the extreme as we've seen with Federer, Djokovic, Nadal of the consistency. They still had the rivalry there. You've still come out with these massive names. Um, I, you, the winning is what breeds the rivalry if you don't have the kind of weirdest personality like a Kyrgios McEnroe, someone like yeah. that, Mike Tyson, as you mentioning. So, yeah, work to do. Um, I'm still Speaking confident of- it might get there. There's still a good pool of 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who... It has to, it has to eventually, George. It has to eventually. Um, the, men's... The, law of average, the law of average is say it has to, because there's so many of them. Yeah. Like, we're literally <laughs> talking about... Like, the, the, women's top, the women's top 12 now should be one of the best top 12s ever when you've got like, the likes of... You know, you've got Osaka, Barty, Muguruza, Radicanu, Goff, Andrescu, Svontek. Fernandez, all the top of my head here. You think these should be? You think it should be a given that right? We're gonna have a great final here because we've got so many around. Yeah, and we keep getting them where this is like eight in a row now where we haven't had one. Yeah, very frustrating. Um, talking of great finals, uh, on some level, uh, Australia had more than one winner over the weekend. Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis won the men's doubles final. They beat Max Purcell and Matthew Ebden. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier on. I, I mean, there's I don't know how much there's to say here. I, I know that George will have something to say because he's such a big fan of Nick Kyrgios, but they brought a huge amount of attention to the men's doubles, and I got very frustrated afterwards. I, I asked, well, it was a question to both of them or either of them, and I said, you know, you've just won a Grand Slam doubles title. You're obviously stoked about it. You've gone out and played a way that you think is much better than the boring serve and volley that everyone else plays why don't you go and win some more Grand Slam titles? To which Kyrgios said, well, I'm not playing the French and I'm not going to play doubles at Wimbledon, so I guess we might play at US and ATP finals. And it's like, well, <laughs> it's great, but it's if they really think, and Nick says that he has changed the game and can change the game, go and do it. Like, go out there and do it. Turn up to the Grand Slams, play a few Masters Thousands events and change the doubles game for the better. I know doubles players and I've spoken to lots of doubles players who are like, we think we've got a really good product. And if people were actually just told to come and watch, they would, but they don't for whatever reason. And if Kyrgios really wants to make a difference and like create a legacy, then go and do that. Like he can do it. You don't need to be that fit for doubles. You don't need to do all the hard work. You're forgetting though, James, that Nick Kyrgios' favorite topic is how he's not going to be playing tennis for the foreseeable. (laughs) He, He never misses an opportunity to, Literally all the time, whenever he's good, and he's good most of the time when he plays, within an hour of finishing that, he's talking about how he's not going to be playing, either in the long term or the short term. It's, it's all he talks about. And to be fair, it, it was good. You know, they played great. I was happy they won, and I think it was great, as I said yesterday, to win a major with your best mate. It must be one of the biggest buzzers in sport. But I think it was a bit exaggerated, the, he kept talking about the the atmosphere that he'd created, um, and it, it seemed to be always him personally as well. 
Yeah. Um, but as I've alluded to earlier, that crowd were a bunch of idiots. So they were going to just shout and cheer anyway. So, you know, I'm not sure what to read into that. But he all, and then the comment he made today, I don't even know what Max Purcell said, but it's just just getting a bit old now, isn't it? It's all the time. You think he's on some sort of way back to being a bit sensible and then he starts mouthing off like that again. Just to kind of fill people in who, who haven't seen Nick Kyrgios's, uh return to form might be the best way of saying it. Uh, he posts on Instagram. I won't read the whole thing. Um, he said, F you media. Honestly, I said nothing disrespectful to Ash Barty. He had said that they could, they had created the best atmosphere that tournament had ever seen. Um, they, they said it wasn't a, a slight on Ash Barty, who'd obviously played the match before. As for Max Purcell, you donut. Regarding your comments after the match, you clearly have no idea about entertainment and sport. If you haven't noticed, there's a reason why people actually come to my matches is because the level and my game are actually worth watching. Next time you lose another slam final, you should just put your head down. No need to slate other Aussies in the media because people would rather watch paint dry than your serve and volley game style. I mean, it, to be fair, as you say, I listened to quite a lot of what Max Purcell said. I was in his press conference after the final and I didn't see any particular slight. Like he said, basically he wished more people would come and watch them. Like that was the biggest crowd he ever played in front of. And that was like, thanks to Nick and Tanasi to a certain extent. I thought he was pretty respectful to be honest, but you know, Kyrgios will always find something to complain about, I suppose, George. Yeah. <clears throat> and look, I, I'm not condoning this. I mean, there is a degree of truth that there was more eyes on the doubles this week. And we've said it before, you know, we'd love, the biggest stars in tennis to play doubles more often. It, when you watch Nadal play Medvedev for five and a half hours, you realise why that's not possible because imagine Nadal then having to rush off or having come back from a doubles final the day before, you know, it, it's unsustainable, but Kyrgios is in that interesting position where he loses in slams in the first two rounds because his ranking is bad. So he plays someone really good one to three. He, he can be fit enough to go and win doubles. And, you know, I think it's, could end up being quite a good thing for tennis in in some ways that this big character, if he does somehow maintain some doubles form, if he turns up and plays, he says he's not going to play Wimbledon. He says he's not going to play the French Open. So maybe that's a bit of a pipe dream, but got to take the wins you can get in doubles because people were interested in it this week. And they should be interested. Yeah. yeah, Like I said, if he's not going to turn up, who cares? Like it's not going to make it. He's not going to change the game because he's not going to be playing it. And I'm, I'm kind of with Calvin on this. Like, I, I was, I was, I said it in the WhatsApp group when someone posted that Instagram post. I said, "Oh, I was just starting to like him again." And I do go through periods of being like, "Ah, oh, Nick Kyrgios is actually quite a sensitive guy," but he's just so prickly and so angry, and he thrives on creating headlines and then complains that he's created headlines. Like, it, it just frustrates me. I'm afraid. It's also just like it's not based on anything. What we keep saying how he's changed the game. What, can we quantify that? I mean, people, like, what, people, when... people tuning in for and watching doubles like that's what he means. Yeah, if if there were in, for example, in the stadium, if you had two Brits made the final of the men's doubles, centre court would be full. Yeah, like you know, it's if or maybe not two. That's that's been a bit harsh. But if Andy if Andy Murray makes final Wimbledon doubles this year, centre court will be full. Yeah, the it'll, the TV ratings will be huge. Yeah, that's absolutely. not the curious. It's just. It, just a home player, a good home player in a slam making a final. It just yeah. happens. That's it's not him. Well, I'm glad that we've dismissed Nick Kyrgios. I think we needed that. I feel much better. Um, we are running out of time, so um, I'm going to do not a lightning round necessarily, but I'm going to ask you for two things. 
um, your highlight of the tournament. Tournament, the highlight of the tournament, and your biggest disappointment. George, why don't you start? What's been your highlight of the tournament? Uh, probably the men's final, to be fair. I think that was uh, a fitting way to finish it. It was a nice story. Um, it was Nadal kind of taking a grip of the narrative, which we banged on about so much in this podcast this week. So, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. I enjoyed that a lot today. Calvin, your highlight of the tournament? Um, my highlight was actually, I found it really touching, was at the end of the men's final. And, we, and I was watching it with, with Luke, who I coached, and we were debating as to what Nadal would do when he finished. And we both thought down on the knees or lying on the back. And I just thought his reaction was just brilliant. It was it was that of a sort of grown-up adult who'd done something that he couldn't believe. He was just he laughing, just looked, wasn't he? He just kind of laughed and looked at his team in amazement. And it was different than the usual Nadal one. There wasn't any of the sort of knee-up fist pump, and which is also theatre. I love all that. He, he's, mm. a, he's As I've said, it's always theatre, it's always box office, but I just thought it was really brilliant celebration and reaction at the end. Uh, for me, it, it was Gail Monfils um, and his run to the quarterfinal, and not just Gail Monfils going out and winning tennis matches in the brilliant way that he does. It was actually after he lost. He lost to Berrettini in five in the quarters, and he sat in press, and he didn't seem that gutted. Like, he, he didn't seem that gutted because... He said something along the lines of, and it really like just moved me. He said, "I can win one. Like, uh, I've, if I can play like this, I can win one." Now, I don't know if Gael Monfils can win one a Grand Slam, which is what he means. But the fact that he believes he can, having sat in a press conference like that a year ago and cried and said, "I don't know when this nightmare is going to end," I don't think you've got a human bone in your body if you don't think that's a moving moment. The, the guy is. Nick Kyrgios thinks he's box office. Gael Monfils is a proper box office player and he has worked hard to achieve that. So that's my highlight of the tournament, really. Um, George, your biggest disappointment? I mean, you can just say the whole women's draw if you want. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I mean, there's a lot of contenders on that side, but I am actually going to go for a, a men's draw candidate. Um, not that I particularly want him to win this slam or any in the future, but I was really disappointed by Zverev. I thought he would have been giving Nadal a proper quarterfinal. We could have had that proper build-up with those big matches, um, which which we sort of got to a degree on the, the other side with Medvedev, Sissabas. But yeah, I, I, I was really disappointed by Zverev's level, considering I thought he kind of changed. I thought he was going to be in the semifinals of every slam going forward. Uh, and actually, he kind of returned to the old narrative of, I can't be a top 10 player at the slam, which I, I, I still can't understand, given he mullers them all. And this um, was, for the record, I still think this was worse than his previous Grand Slam thing because his previous Grand Slam thing was get two sets up and bottle it. Yeah. Now, against Shapovalov, he was just dreadful throughout. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I might agree with you on that one. Calvin, your biggest disappointment? Uh, just a quick comment on George's there because about three or four times in this podcast, he said something about giving Nadal a proper quarterfinal. Quarterfinal went five sets. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what, what do you need to do? I'll have a bit of grief like he's rolled over for Nadal there. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it sounds obvious, but yeah, the women's, the, the back end of the women's role. But, you know, we got to remember at the start, I guess a week ago, we were talking about maybe this is the one. Yeah, Maybe yeah. this is the one where we get the, the, the big final and it just fell apart in the second week, didn't it? So the women, women's second week, I'd say, was the biggest disappointment. I think, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to pick. I mean, I'm going to pick someone specific, although there are a lot of candidates. 
I think probably Garbina Muguruza because I just spend my life talking about how good she is and like how satisfying her game style is. Like she comes forward and plays, obviously hits it big and she's also really nice and I really like her. And like, you know, Elise Cornet's story was great, but realistically Garbina Muguruza will not look at Elise Cornet and think she's ever anyone she should be losing to. Um, so yeah, that's probably my my major disappointment. Although, yeah, there's any number of candidates. Um, my perhaps my biggest disappointment, and we really must end in a moment, is the performance of my fantasy tennis team, which was <laughs> absolutely abysmal and included Garbinia Muguruza, which probably informed my decision. Neither me or George even made it into the top 100. Uh, uh, although, excuse me, I blame. I was in the top 100 right to the end. Of it. That must have been kicked out because of yeah the you're doubt. now 106 yeah that's a shame yeah it, i mean it was a terrible you. it was a terrible fantasy for me the whole time but i thought well i'm gonna have a respectable it's still a top half finish i guess which yeah. isn't uh... um huge amounts of credit must go to alala vigo and the what happy slam team 52 points they were guaranteed the victory although they might have had to share it had um daniel medvedev picked up the win um starring carlos alcaraz uh Maxime Cressy, very good pick there. Ash Barty, of course. Jess Pagula. Madison Keys, who is a big points getter as well. So congrats to Lala Vigo. Um, I know you already celebrated on Twitter, but congrats. Um, some congratulations must also go to Calvin, who yeah. finished third on 49.5 points, just 1.5, uh, 2.5 behind the winner, which and picked both champions, of course, which is um, pretty impressive. Joint third, though, Calvin, with Nikor and beaten by Gimple which uh, I don't know. I, I, I hedged my bets pretty well, to be fair, because I picked Medvedev uh, in that, but I also picked Nadal to win the final um, in the yesterday, pod. I think, uh, when, we yeah, did, yeah. when we did the pod, didn't I? So, uh, and I also think I picked Osaka in our predictions and I picked Barty to win, the, win it in yeah. this. So, You've, you're yeah. learning the George Belshaw school of covering all bases. <laughs> it's very impressive. Uh, we and really I do... didn't do that, really, in this tournament. <laughs> I, I was too sensible backing my actual picks. I need to spread my wings wide so I can win something somewhere. We really do have to go now. Um, thank you so much for listening as always. I hope you've enjoyed the coverage during the Australian Open. We'll be back next week um, looking forward to clay and the sunshine swing, of course, and the hard court season in America. We're going to become a little bit more international in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to China on Wednesday. George is going to Cuba in a couple of weeks. Um, it's going to be very interesting. I hope we'll still be able to podcast effectively. It's going to be a bit of a learning experience for all of us, but Uh, Do stay safe wherever you are and thanks as always for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.